If you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Samuel. We'll be in chapters 5 and 6 this morning of 2 Samuel. Last week, uh, we, we looked at a lot of scripture in 2 Samuel, a little bit in First uh, Chronicles. And we saw several main characters, or I should, should say maybe uh, major characters. The main character was David. Um, several major characters presenting major challenges to David in these previous chapters in his ascension to the throne over all Israel. First, as David came to the throne of Judah and was anointed the king over Judah, Abner, the uh, uncle of King Saul and also his chief commander of the forces, the military of Israel, had anointed Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, as the king over Israel. And so for a time, there were two kings, David over Judah and Ishbosheth over the rest of Israel, although many more and more were defecting to David during that, during that about seven years, perhaps seven and a half years, where David was reigning over Hebron in southern Judah, while Ishbosheth reigned on the, from his capital, which was moved to the other side of Jordan because of how much territory the Philistines had taken from King Saul in the northern part of Israel. Well, that was one challenge that he faced. Then he had to face the challenge of Abner, who had anointed Ishbosheth to be the king, when he defected to join David and was attempting to bring all of Israel to be united under just David as king. At just the wrong time, Joab, who was uh, David's captain over his military forces, for the kingdom of Judah and had fought battles against Abner uh, during the civil war that had ensued when Ishbosheth came to the throne and David was already had been anointed king over Judah. During that civil war, they had faced off and Abner had killed one of Joab's brothers, one of his two brothers. And so Joab murders Abner uh, in revenge. Just while Abner was trying to unite the kingdom for David. And so that presented a major challenge for David. But as David responded to those challenges patiently and wisely and graciously, he made it clear that he was not out to seek vengeance on the house of Saul. And he honored Abner at his funeral. And then furthermore, when Ishbosheth was also assassinated, he had the assassins put to death. They thought they were going to be rewarded by David when they brought Ishbosheth's head to David in chapter 4. But they were not. They were executed for killing their king. But now that Ishbosheth has been executed, there was only Mephibosheth. We'll come back to him in a future chapter, probably after Valentine's Day. Uh, the son of Jonathan. He was really the, the next in line to be king in the, from the house of Saul, but Israel didn't turn to him. 
Mephibosheth was a cripple. David was st becoming stronger and stronger with more and more supporters. And once Ishbosheth, Saul's son who had been king, was assassinated, they came to David in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel and anointed him king. It's his third anointing as king. He had been anointed by Samuel about 15 years earlier. Well, perhaps much longer by this time now, as he'd been king seven years, seven and a half years over the tribe of Judah, and it reigned in Hebron in southern Judah. But now all of Israel is going to make him their king in chapter 5. And in chapters 5 and 6, as David ascends to the throne over all of Israel, he now learns four lessons, four lessons that we should also learn from in that we need God's direction. We need to seek God's direction and follow that direction in our lives. David, we see that these four lessons in 2 Samuel 5 and 6 today. Let's open in prayer for this message and we'll begin to look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for each one who is here with us. We pray for those who are not with us. We pray for Mary as she is very sick this morning and, and perhaps going to urgent care this afternoon. We pray that you will uh, give the doctors wisdom that they'll determine what kind of medication maybe she could take. I know she already has a lot of, of health um, needs and, and other medications. And Lord, I just pray that you would encourage her today as she's not able to be with us. We thank you. Tony is able to be here this morning after being sick and pray that you help him to recover. I pray you keep all those um, who are healthy, as, as healthy as possible, and those who are uh, sick or have different physical needs and healing needs, we pray they continue to recover and uh, that you will get them through and draw them closer to you. And Lord, for our daily lives and for our future on this earth, however long or short that may be, I pray that we would use our time here to glorify you, not only here this morning in church, but on this earth in our lives, that we would seek your direction and that we would find it and follow that direction for our lives from your word, most of all, and through prayer. And we thank you for David's example to us and also the negative example of when he failed to do so and how we can learn from that this morning and every day. We pray you bless the, the preaching from your word and that everyone would be able to hear clearly and then I would be able to articulate this message this morning and uh, be able to be heard by all. We thank you again and pray that you'll, you'll bless this time and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second uh, Samuel chapter 5. The first lesson um, that David is learning, or, or has really learned, because he's putting it into practice at the beginning of this chapter, is that he's, he's making wise decisions by relying on the strength that the Lord gives him. He has patiently waited now all this time to become the king over Israel. And finally, he's anointed king over all Israel. So the first um, lesson that we can learn from here is his, David's wisdom that he demonstrates by walking in the strength of the Lord as he is anointed king over Israel and he wisely picks Jerusalem to be his new capital. We'll see this 
in the opening verses here, 1 through 16 of chapter 5. Look with me this morning at chapter 5, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. Excuse me, 2 Samuel, yes, verse 1 of chapter 5. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David and to Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And in time past, when Saul was king over Israel, over us, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So now Israel is finally acknowledging. It, it took them a while to get to this point. But they remember that David had led them forth to battle in the past when he had served King Saul after defeating Goliath. It was said of David at one point, to, uh, which ended up with Saul becoming all the more jealous and eventually trying to kill David, was that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, as he led them forth to victories over the Philistines. And they remembered that. Remember, that was a very important desire of theirs, to be successful in military campaigns and to be safe and secure at home. That is why they wanted a king in the first place. That's why they had come to Samuel and demanded a king. And Saul had been given as their king. And a fitting one to what they had wanted as he had stood head and shoulders taller than anyone. And he did lead them successfully into battle. For which we saw in the opening chapter of 2 Samuel a couple of weeks ago. David eulogized Saul and his son Jonathan who fell in battle against the Philistines for how they had been mighty men and great leaders and had led Israel to battle successfully in the past. Now David is looked to by Israel as the son of Saul has failed. He was a weak king when he was king. The real power behind his throne had been Abner, Saul's captain. And now he is off the scene, and they come to David in these verses. And they are acknowledging God's choice of David. Ultimately, it's not just because David's led them to battle that he is the best person to be their king. They could have turned to Joab or someone else. But David, he was anointed by Samuel. He has been also confirmed by Judah. He had been chosen by the Lord. And they're acknowledging that finally in these opening verses of chapter 5 in 2 Samuel. Verse 3, So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron. Notice, David was already king. They came to the king to Hebron. And King David made a league with them. Another word for that word league is covenant. He makes an agreement with them. In Hebron, before the Lord. Notice he's doing it before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. So he's 30 years old when he began to reign over Judah. He's going to be about 37, 38 perhaps years old now when all of Israel acknowledges him as their king. As we see in verse 5, in Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. And now we come to verse 6, where David is going to establish a new capital. And wisely so, because Jerusalem is a very good choice as far as its location. And it will become known as Zion as well, Mount Zion. 
Jerusalem, this is the city where Melchizedek had been the king of Salem, and Abraham had brought tithes to Melchizedek of all that he had. And Melchizedek had been a priest and king, one whom was a type of Christ, a picture in the Old Testament of who Christ would be, as Christ Jesus is both our king and our high priest. Whereas the, the kings of Israel, beginning with Saul, are only kings. They're not allowed to perform the office of priest. That is a separate office, and they are not allowed that. But Melchizedek had been both a priest and king at Salem, which was Jerusalem. But sometime after, after Abraham, sometime after Abraham, probably while the Israelites were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. The Canaanites had come to possess Jerusalem. And they are called the Jebusites. The Israelites were supposed to wipe out the Canaanites, drive them out of the land, and possess the land. In the book of Joshua, they began that task. But once Joshua had passed out the scene, they really failed to complete it. And at some times when they were strong, they would force the Canaanites in the land, depending on what tribe and where they were, to, to pay tribute. In some places, the Canaanites were more driven out than others. But in this city of Jerusalem, the Canaanites were uh, well-established. They had a mighty fortress, as we'll see in these verses, and they mocked anyone to be able to try to take Jerusalem because of their walls. Similar to the thinking of Jericho, who had high walls and trusted in their walls to protect them. And here the walls will not come down as they did for Jericho, but there's a boast that we'll see in the following verses that is not, is not particularly clear because how it's worded, but apparently there was such a reputation for this stronghold at Jerusalem that the Jebusites claimed that they could put blind and lame men on the wall to defend it and no one would be able to conquer it. So formidable was their fortress. And so confident were they in their ability to defend it. But Jerusalem is located on the northern edge of Judah, near Benjamin. And remember, Benjamin was the tribe that was the most loyal to Saul because that was the tribe that Saul was from. So to unite all of Israel now, this is a very good and strategic location, historically and also geographically. It's a good choice. It's a wise choice by King David. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, and the inhabitants of the land which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and lame, thou shalt not come in hither. They're speaking here again, as I mentioned. We can defend our walls with blind and lame men. We don't have to put our strong men on the walls to defeat you. You cannot defeat us. So they're taunting David here. Thinking David cannot come in thither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they said, the blind and lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David 
And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of the host was with him. And First Chronicles records uh, the results of this. Joab became the captain for David. Perhaps he was set aside after murdering Abner. Perhaps he was on probation. Perhaps he really never had been confirmed as the top man under David. Although it seemed like he seemed uh, to, to be close to that in the previous chapters. But now he's going to be confirmed as David's chief captain. That's recorded for us in 1 Chronicles. Joab does go up the gutter. Um, he Basically, there was a, a, a tunnel system or um, a way for water to come under the walls of Jerusalem, uh, about perhaps even 40 feet down. It was finally found by archaeologists in Jerusalem that there was a way for water to come into the city during a time of siege. And so whether they, uh, it seems that they came and used that passage to come in and conquer the rest of Jerusalem, the, that walled city. And so it is taken, and it becomes the city called the city of David. It becomes the capital, the new capital of all of Israel. So now that he is established, newly established as the king over all Israel, he has a new capital. Look at verse 11 now. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. And this house was on basically Mount Zion. It was uh, on, on, a, on a hill, which is now part of the city of Jerusalem today. And so the king of Tyre, he's a Phoenician to the north of Israel. And he is recognizing David's legitimacy here. He's recognizing David's accomplishment of uniting Israel. And he is being helpful here, confirming David as the king and empowering David. You know, perhaps there's some rivalry here between the, the king of Tyre and the Philistines. Perhaps he's seeking an alliance against them. Whatever the case here, he is... Um, helpful in confirming David. And it, it's, it's a general principle that, uh, that you see here as, as we walk with God and honor God and make wise decisions. As Jesus also grew when he was on earth in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You see David here also growing in favor with God and man. Verse 13. Now David isn't perfect not a perfect example for us. He does depart from the law of God in a couple of ways in these two chapters that we're going to look at. The first way he departs is, is not going to be confronted immediately here, but it's going to take its toll in the future. David violates the requirements of a king that were given in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where kings were told not to increase their con number of concubines and wives. And David does this now. Verse 13, and David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And there be the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem. 
and these be the names, Shemua, and Shobab, and Nathan, and Solomon. Don't really know anything about those first couple of names, but Nathan and Solomon. They're going to be mentioned again. Of course, Solomon would become uh, known as the wisest ruler that ever lived. He would be, continue David's line of kings. Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus. Joseph of Nazareth in the New Testament. He was born into the line of kings as a descendant of Solomon. But there was an important prophecy that we won't go into in detail that in the Old Testament it was said that uh, there was a certain king in the line of Solomon, in the line of kings, that he was so wicked that God said of him, Jeconiah, that he will not have his descendants to be king. So Jesus is not by blood related back through that line of kings. He actually goes by blood through Mary. Mary is a descendant of Nathan that is listed in verse 14. Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes back to Nathan, whose descendants did not uh, rule as king as Solomon's descendants did, but ultimately they will um, through Jesus. Let's look at verse the following verses 15 and 16. Ibahar also and Elushua and Nepheg and Japhia and Elshema and Eliada and Elphalet. So he continues to have sons and he's established now his reign at Jerusalem. He wisely chose Jerusalem. And I want you to notice before moving on to the next point, very key here is verse 10 of this section. Verse 10, And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So the reason that David increases in his power, the reason ultimately that you know, he's recognized as king, he's, he's been anointed by the elders, he's established his new capital at Jerusalem, and now Hiram, the king of Tyre, acknowledges him and befriends him and sends him materials to build his palace. But it's through the power of God in his life. David had walked uh, wisely before God. He had been patient in waiting. He had had opportunities to try and seize the throne prematurely and had rejected those. He did not seek to overthrow Saul or even Saul's son violently. And now God is, is supporting him and he is with him and prospering David. So that's the first lesson we learn here is to walk in the power of God, to behave ourselves in such a way, wisely applying the principles of Scripture. Now, David was not a perfect example in that for his increase of concubines and wives, but up for the most part here, we see that David has walked in such a way that it pleases God, and God is with him. And that's the key to his success and his beginning, his successful reign as the king over all Israel, is that God is with him. God is with him. And as God's children, God is with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? So David is going to find that out in this second lesson that we see him learning in his defeat of the Philistines 
in verses 17 through 25. And I want to note that this passage, verses 17 through 25 of 2 Samuel 5, when it's recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 14, it actually is recorded as falling between the first part of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel and the second part of chapter 6. And I find that interesting. I wasn't able to find out where it should actually go chronologically. I imagine Chronicles is probably the correct uh, chronology. I'm not sure. But the idea here is the Philistines realize now that David is a threat to them. They were long-time enemies of Israel. They had ruled over Israel. Um, going up to the time of Samuel, when that rule was broken off. During the time of Samson, in the book of Judges, they were ruling over Israel. They were occupying Israel. And now they were occupying much of Israel's territory following the defeat of King Saul at the end of 1 Samuel. And they are now threatened by David. While David was reigning over Judah, perhaps... The Philistines still considered David their friend. He had lived in their territory, in Philistine territory, while Saul, in the latter part of Saul's reign, while Saul had been seeking David's life. And he had served Achish, or at least told Achish, the king of Philistia, that he was serving him and on his side and willing to go to battle for the king of the Philistines. So perhaps when David becomes the king over Judah, and Ishbosheth was the king over the rest of Israel, the descendant of Saul. Perhaps they saw David as he's on our side. Israel's divided against itself. David is fighting against the descendant of King Saul. This is good for us. This is fine. But now when David takes over all of Israel, they realize, wait a minute, we have a rival. And David is a threat to our occupation of northern Israel. He's a threat to us. So they attack. But as far as the chronology is concerned here, according to First Chronicles, the first part of 2 Samuel 6, where David brings the ark, tries to bring it to Jerusalem, but brings it on a cart rather than the Levites carrying it on poles. And Uzzah, who is on the cart, touches the ark and is killed by God. That all happens before this battle. And then you have that intermission of of several months that goes by between David's first attempt to bring the ark back and his second attempt, which is successful because he follows God's will there. And in chapter 6, if we look at chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart. And also in Chronicles, we won't, we won't go over there this morning, it's a very similar account, but it, it mentions that he consults with Israel, saying, hey, shouldn't we bring the ark up? Don't you think that's a good idea? Basically. But he doesn't, doesn't say he consulted God. And he didn't, certainly didn't follow God's directions for how they moved the ark. They did their own way, their own method. And that was to put the ark of God on a cart, which the Philistines had done to return it partway to Israel previously. So they thought, well, the Philistines used a cart. We'll build a new cart. Surely this will be acceptable. Well, it didn't turn out well. As uh, while it was being moved, a life was lost, as we'll see. 
So David didn't, apparently did not seek God's will in that situation. And he learns a lesson negatively, learns from that disaster in his first attempt to bring the ark, that it's not just important to do the right thing, it's important to do the right thing in the right way. In the right way, that's important. And he learns the importance of seeking God's will. And with that in mind, when we look at verse 17, as David seeks God's direction for help in defeating the Philistines in battle, perhaps if this had happened just after the disastrous first attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, if that happens after it, perhaps David's learned something here. To consult the Lord, to go to God, to inquire, is this what you want and how should we do this? Rather than finding his own way and leaning on his own understanding of the situation. And that would make sense. That otherwise it would seem that he did seek God at this battle and then he doesn't seek him when he tries to bring the Ark of the Covenant back the first time. And then he learns, you know, I've, I've sought the Lord before and he's helped me. Maybe I should go back and I should seek the Lord's will and do it God's way. And he learns. Either way, the lesson is clear here. In verses 17 of 25 of chapter 5, David seeks God's direction for help. And God helps him to defeat the Philistines in battle. Let's look at verse 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 5. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David. And David heard of it and went down to the hold, the fortress, a safe place. Verse 18, And the Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephium. And David inquired of the Lord. Notice that. That's important. He inquired of the Lord, which means probably he went to the priest, and the priest um, discerned, uh, perhaps through the means of the Urim and Thummim, not mentioned specifically here, what God's will was for this situation. But David, it's very important, sought God's will. So verse 19, And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. And David came to Baal Peor, and David smote them there. So notice David not only sought God's direction, but once he had it, he followed it. He didn't doubt it and question it like Gideon did or others, Barak, Barak in the past. When they, he was told that God was going to deliver them into his hands, he acted upon it. He followed those directions. Uh, so verse 20, And David came to Baal um, Perazim, and David smote them there and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon my enemies. That's what Baal Perazim means, broken forth. Um, hath broken forth upon... Specifically, the word perez means broken forth. We'll see that word again in chapter 6. The Lord hath broken forth upon my enemies before me as the breach of waters. We'll see that terminology used again. Perhaps this has happened after the first part of 6. Perhaps it's happening before, but we'll see that term again. But I think it's happening after, which is recorded in 1 Chronicles. I think that's probably the, this battle is taking place after David has tried to bring the ark back in chapter 6. The Lord hath broken forth upon my enemies before me as the breach of waters. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perizim. 
And there they left their images, and David and his men burned them. They burned the idols, probably made with wood. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of uh, Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up. So notice, God has now told David not to go up, whereas before he told David to go up. And David's going to listen to that instruction. Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them and come upon them over against the mulberry tree. So he says, spread yourselves out, come around, surround them. Don't just come up straight on and attack them. You're going to follow these directions. Fetch a compass behind them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. Very specific directions. And let it be when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. And that that term, a going, could also be translated a marching. Perhaps it's the army of the Lord, the angels of the Lord, the host of God, marching that David hears or will hear here in the tops of the mulberry trees. And then thou shalt bestir thyself. For then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And notice verse 25, very important. And David did so. David didn't scorn these instructions he was given. He followed them to the letter and was successful as a result. God was with him. And David did so. And the Lord, as the Lord had commanded him, and smote the Philistines from Geba unto, until thou come to Gezer. So although David had not followed God's directions, when he increased his concubines and his wives, he had not followed God's directions when he tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant on a cart by oxen. He does follow God's directions to let her hear, and God gives him a great military victory, defeating those persistent enemies, the Philistines. And more and more throughout his reign over Israel, he will widen the borders of Israel in every direction, winning many battles against the Philistines and other enemies. But it's because God was with him. God empowered him. God provided the victory for David after David sought God's direction and followed it. So that's the second lesson we see is that David seeks God's direction and help in defeating the Philistines in battle. And he follows those directions and is given a great victory. Then chapter 6, let's look again at, 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 at this part where David does fail to follow God's directions and it ends in tragedy. Uh, again, I believe this happened before the battle, could be after. But verse 1 of chapter 6, again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord, of hosts that dwelleth before the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the host of Abinadab and was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So notice Abinadab was the person keeping it in his house. And Uzzah had been living there. And so Uzzah had been, through familiarity perhaps, he grew less afraid of the Ark of the Covenant, less respectful of the presence of God there. 
because that's what the Ark of the Covenant represented. It represented the presence of God. And there should be a great fear, reverence, respect for the presence of God. But Uzzah had, had grown familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, and, and now he, he makes the assumption that when the Ark of the Covenant seems like it might fall off the cart, that his hand might be holier than the ground, and that he could touch it and keep it from falling, and that was a great error, a great mistake on his part. Um, although he may have been completely innocent in his intentions, good intentions don't always count. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on a man, all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And again, I, I mentioned there was a term we were going to come back to. That was the term from verse 20 of the previous chapter, chapter 5, where it says, And David came to Baal Perizim. Perizim. Notice that word Perez in Perez, uh, Baal Perizim. And notice the word Perez in verse 8, Perez Uzzah. It's the same word. And the word, the term in verse 20 of chapter 5 that says, The Lord hath broken forth upon that term and breach of waters, broken forth upon breach of waters. They're the same terms being used here in verse 8 of chapter 6 when it said the Lord made a breach upon Uzzah. So he broke forth upon Uzzah, made a breach. And therefore the name of the place, Perez Uzzah to this day, made a breach upon, broke forth upon Uzzah. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of God come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And as I said earlier, in, in uh, the First Chronicles account in chapter 13 through 15, chapter 13 is this section that we just read of 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 11. And uh, chapter 14 is David defeating the Philistines that we just saw in chapter 5 here in 2 Samuel. And then chapter 15 in, second, in First Chronicles records what comes next, this final lesson that David learns and that we can learn from. Whereas in the third lesson, David seeks to do the right thing by bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. He does it in the wrong way. And there are those terrible consequences. Uzzah is killed. And, and David rightly becomes afraid. He probably should have had a little bit more reverence going in and taken the time to do the right thing that he was trying to do, bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, there was nothing wrong with that. That was the right thing to do. In fact, it's kind of a, a signal that 
there, this was another problem with King Saul. He never brought the Ark of the Covenant back. He never did. In fact, instead of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back and seeking God and trying to do God's will, at the end of his life, King Saul went to a witch and tried to find God's will through a witch sorcery. And there's a stark contrast between what, how Saul ruled and how David is beginning his rule by seeking God and following God's direction. But David did fail. That third lesson was David, he failed when he tried to do the right thing by bringing the Ark of the Covenant back, but did it in the wrong way by using a cart instead of the prescribed method by the Lord that is mentioned in Numbers 7, verse 9. So David, and we see this in, if you were to look at 1 Chronicles 15, you would see it even more clearly, I believe, that David takes the time to make sure that he's doing it in the way that God had specifically directed in Numbers chapter 7, verse 9, which was that the Levites were to carry the Ark of the Covenant on staves, on poles. And so, verse 13, verse 12, And it was told the king, David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and all that pertaineth unto him, because the Ark of God. So David, again, there's a great blessing that comes from the presence of God. We notice that in verse 10 of 2 Samuel chapter 5. David prospered because God was with him. And now we see in verse 12 that Obed-Edom prospers as the presence of God, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, is with him. So David went, in verse 12, part B, So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so, verse 13, when they that bear the ark, notice that now they're carrying the ark. It's not the oxen in the cart, as in the first part of chapter 6. And this is specified in 1 Chronicles 15. When they had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. So notice he's giving thanks here. We've taken six steps with doing it the right way. Not just doing the right thing, but doing it the right way. Holding the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. The Levites, specifically, who were called upon to bear the Ark, being the right people to carry it in the right way. And now that we've taken six steps and we're not dead, let's offer the sacrifice and give thanks to God. And that's what they do when they sacrifice the oxen and fatlings. Not sure if those are the same oxen that were pulling the cart earlier or not, but sacrifice the oxen and fatlings. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod, which is the uh, customary clothing of the Levites, probably the same thing that the Levites bearing the ark were wearing. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet, which sound we are looking forward to today, one day when God, when Christ Jesus will return for his church and we'll hear the sound of a trumpet. Verse 16, And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, remember in the previous passage that we looked at last week, one of the things that David required, well, the one thing he required of Abner to show his loyalty when Abner defected from Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who was reigning as king over the northern tribes, especially Benjamin. To show his loyalty, his new loyalty to David, Abner, who had been Saul's captain over Israel, had been the one who anointed, who crowned 
Ishbosheth as the king over as the rival king of David to show that he was loyal, he was required to bring Michael, the daughter of Saul, David's very first wife, to take her away from her husband that she had been given to by Saul, you know, in uh, ignoring David and rejecting David as his son-in-law. Saul had done that. Well, Abner did that. Ishbosheth ordered it. And she was brought to David. And her husband was forced to go, to go back to his town. And, but perhaps she has some resentment for that. Perhaps she missed her old husband, her second husband that now is not her husband that David, you know, and maybe she's not happy to be back with her original husband. Maybe she's upset that her brother is no longer the king. That he's been assassinated. Maybe she's upset her family of King Saul is not continuing their reign over Israel. Whatever the motivation, she looks at David and she despises him. And David is God's anointed. David is the one God has chosen, a man after his own heart, to rule Israel. And David here is being despised for worshiping God with all his heart. Verse 16, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place and in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women as men. And that's interesting. Uh, he gave everyone there, women and men alike, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. And then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious, because she's being sarcastic here. Uh, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows and shamelessly uncovered himself. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, before all his house, to appoint me ruler of the people of Israel, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight. And of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. And so you see a lot of contrasts in David's reply to Michael. He contrasts himself with King Saul in his house. How Saul, you know, he had not done this for God at any point. He had not honored and, and worshipped God this way. But David was. And David was chosen instead of Saul to be the king. And he's doing this praise and honor, this, this dance in this, it, that he did was for God. It was before God. It was for him. That's why he did it. It wasn't for himself, not to draw attention to himself. And he didn't care what people thought of him because he was doing it for God. And that's important. And he's willing. He doesn't care what other people think, he says in verse 22. Unlike Michael, who seems to, that's all she cares about. 
What do other people think? You know, what do other people think of me now that my father is no longer the king and my brother is no longer the king and now I've been taken from my other husband and I'm back with David? What, what are other people going to think of me? Uh, what are the maidservants going to think of my new husband? Look at how he's acting. And he, my father didn't act this way. Or maybe she's thinking of how King Saul acted when the Holy Spirit came upon him and he prophesied. And there was a whole saying that went out, is Saul among the prophets? Which was a, a proverb meaning something is wrong here. This, this is not a normal thing. Maybe she didn't like that. I don't know. But she's concerned with what other people think, specifically the handmaids. And yet David says he will be held in honor by the handmaids that she mentioned, that they will honor him, unlike Michael is doing to him right now. She's dishonoring him with what she's telling him. And yet the handmaids who she mentioned who are actually going to honor him. There's a contrast. And, uh, and we have to be careful. Uh, Michael is critical here, has a critical spirit of David, and we have to be careful of that. You know, it would be like one of us saying, I didn't like how Chuck was uh, playing the guitar this morning. He was tapping his feet. I remember uh, being in a, a strict Baptist church when I was growing up, and it, they had good standards of music, but at the same time, sometimes uh, I remember a person was offended because uh, he was not allowed to play a banjo or accordion for special music because the pastor said, well, somebody might start tapping their foot. And that would be sinful. That would be sinful. Somebody starts tapping their foot when they're sitting in the pew listening to that music. Um, of course, we left that church not long after that. Not for that reason. It was actually because the pastor was, uh, without the church's permission, he was uh, taking all the church's his salary, putting it in his retirement fund, and uh, took a couple of jobs and became bivocational without the church's permission. And we're living off those jobs as well as his wife. And so, uh, but that, that was probably another straw when my, in my parents' decision to leave that church. But, um, you know, it's a bad example. The, I think the key when it comes to music in church, you can go either extreme. It can become a performance where if David had been trying to get everybody's attention drawn to himself when he was dancing, and he, he, you know, he obviously, you know, and Chuck didn't take the guitar and smash it on the, uh, on the, you know, you could go either extreme when it comes to music and church and music for God. And the point, I think, the focus is, is it for God or is it to draw attention to yourself? And when, when we're doing it for God, that's what's important. And it's obviously important to do the, the right thing in the right way as well as we saw in this passage with uh, let's, let's not do something that violates his clear instruction. You know, we can't say, well, we're doing it for God. It's something that God says specifically don't do because that's what David did when he brought the Ark of the Covenant on the, on the cart being pulled by the oxen. And that was a great mistake. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, from these two chapters, they're full of insights. And it all comes down to, are we following God's direction? Are we seeking and following God's direction? Are we doing everything that we're doing for God? Is that our primary motivation? And are we doing it in the right way? You know, we saw, first of all, that David chose the capital of Jerusalem. It doesn't say that he inquired specifically of God, but it, it turns out to be a wise choice. That Historically, geographically, it was a good choice. And it says in verse 10, right after it describes 
David's anointing and choosing Jerusalem to be his capital, that God was with him. And I think that's a confirmation that David was making good choices because he was with God and he was not doing things contrary to God's instructions. He went on and, and did mess up by taking extra wives and concubines. That will catch up with him later, as we shall see. But uh, second, secondly, David sought God's direction in defeating the Philistines. He specifically sought God's direction. I believe he learned a lesson from the ox cart incident with the Ark of the Covenant. I think that did happen first. Whether it or not, he learns the lesson by the end of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel when he brings the Ark of the Covenant back. So we see those four lessons. David wisely choosing the capital, new capital for Israel and God being with him. That's most important. His relying on God in, to provide victory over the Philistines, following God's directions and God's way. And then learning from that mistake of trying to do the right thing, bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the capital, back to Jerusalem, providing a place for it. We'll see in the next chapter next week that he wants to build God a temple. And so he wants to do the right thing, but he does it in the wrong way at first, bringing the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. But then finally, the fourth lesson, he did learn to do things God's way for God. And even when he's singing, he's doing it and dancing and praising God. And we see in, uh, by the way, you can find what David was singing. His psalm, you know, he's, he's famous as a psalmist. What he was singing when he was praising God here is found in the book of First Chronicles. But uh, we see he's doing it for God. He's not doing it to glorify himself. Michael was worried about herself and what other people thought rather than focusing on God. Are we, in our daily lives, do we focus on what God wants? And are we doing everything we do, ultimately not forgetting God and to keep Him at the center of our life as the most important part of our life and that we seek His direction? And remember, He is with us. It is Him that gives us the victory we, have, we can have in life. And when we fail, do we re-examine our, our, our actions and, and see how we haven't measured up? Perhaps we were try, even trying to do the right thing, but did it in the wrong way. And then we go back to God and seek His direction and follow it and find at last His blessing and give Him the praise, as David does as here, regardless of what anyone else thinks of us. Let's close in prayer.